everybody. I'm Lisa. I'm Julie. And this is Two Sober Chicks. The Cottage Edition. (laughs) Whenever you hear the beginning without our theme song, it's because Lisa is up in the big, beautiful north of Ontario. Well, not really north of Ontario, north of Toronto in her safe place. That makes it sound like you've escaped your wife, your safe house. (laughs) My safe house. house, Yeah. From the city. Uh, It's so beautiful to be here, but you're right. I will, I will work on that because all I have to do is get it from home and download it onto this computer. And I just haven't Um, done that. Well, our faithful listeners probably get it. Hey, I want to tell you something very interesting. So my husband in great times of stress has cluster headaches Mm-hmm. And uh, he is a, he's really good at marrying Eastern and Western uh, modalities for everything. Uh, that's how he cured his cancer. It's another story. Anyways, so he found out that kudzu, which is like this crazy weed down here that chokes all of the trees. It looks really pretty. It's like these vines that are just like dripping off of the trees, but it's actually like an invasive species. Mm-hmm. And by taking kudzu, you can help your headaches. What's interesting is in doing research, we found out that kudzu actually inhibits uh, addicts' desire to drink or use, specifically to drink, which is like, so then it's the all natural version of naltrexone, which I don't know if they have it up there, but down here, naltrexone is used to suppress uh, cravings for alcoholics. Uh, Zach doesn't really drink, so it doesn't matter. But I was like shocked to see that because we use antabuse a lot up north in our treatment centers. Um, But then there's the other aspect of um, craving suppression. So he's been taking kudzu. Not that I'm promoting this at any in any way, but it is kind of an exciting thought for people that especially in early recovery can't not like the cravings are killing them. I always say to my sponsees, the craving won't kill you. You can get through it. Mm-hmm. It's going to suck. The drinking will, however. Yeah, kill you. So pick, so pick your hard. It's a comment that one of my friends makes. It's like, pick your hard. You're going to pick that kind of hard or that kind of hard. There's no way out. There's no easy. So just pick which one you want to deal with. Like or that. she's also, I also love when she says, it's your turn. So maybe you're in a season of grief. Maybe you're in a season of prosperity. Maybe you're in a season of depression. Well, it's just your turn right now. And when it's gone, some it's someone, it's always someone's turn to do something, but it's predicated on the, this too shall pass. It's just your turn. Right. Whether it's something joyful or something difficult. Yeah. Or sucky. Sucky. I like that. I like that. I like <laughs> It's just your turn. It's sucky. Amazing. Kudzu. What you'll have to send me a picture of what it looks like. Maybe it grows up here too. I don't know. I've got an invasive vine around the cottage and I keep uh, <sighs> cutting it back. It looks beautiful on the uh, base of the cottage, but I keep cutting it back because it's also choking out all my other wildflowers. It just grows yeah. over everything. It like mows everything down and it's packed. Yep. Yep. Maybe that's what I've got growing here. Who knows? I'm sure there's an analogy there with like, alcohol or addiction how it like seems to be one thing that is harmless and maybe even great to look at great to have around and really it's just choking the life out of other things out of everything cutting yeah, everything, everything. Out of your life one thing at a time 
Um, welcome to part five or edition five of Julie and Lisa's big book study as we are taking you through the big book very slowly. Uh, <laughs> one paragraph, one line, sometimes only a page at a time, just like mm -hmm. how we do with the sponsee. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and I have been suggesting to my sponsees, if you want to go revisit something or you miss something from the earlier pages, this is a great way to do it. Um, cause we're going to cover things that we absolutely covered the first time around when we did it together. So we left off in the fourth edition, uh, in the forward to the second edition on page X V I I, um, just after the, uh, sentence, it also indicated that strenuous work, one alcoholic with another was vital to permanent recovery. So go ahead, Julie. And they're talking about the steps right there. This strenuous work <laughs> is taking other people through the steps. Okay, Julie Alcoholic. Hence, henceforth, the two men set to work almost frantically upon alcoholics arriving in the ward of the Akron City Hospital. Their very first case, a desperate one, recovered immediately and became AA number three, who is Bill Dodson. Oh. I didn't know that. I thought you were going to say somebody, something else. <laughs> He's the guy on the bed. Like if you ever see the, the medallions the or the pictures of the guy on the bed with the other two guys sitting on chairs, that's yeah. Dodson. That's Dodson. And we're going to learn a little bit more about his story because we're going to flip to it in just a second, but just okay. finish. AA number three. Woo! He never had another drink. This work at Akron continued through the summer of 1935. There were many failures, but there was an occasional heartening success. When the broker returned to New York, that would be Bob, oh. uh, Bill, <sighs> Bill. <laughs> in the fall of 1935, the first AA group had actually been formed, though no one realized it at the time. Right. So the birth, the very first uh, group of Alcoholics Anonymous was born in Akron, Ohio. And they reference it in Dodson's story, um, AA number three, Alcoholics Anonymous member number three. In the fourth edition, it starts on page 182. And it says, pioneer member of Akron group number one, the first AA group in the world. He kept the faith. Therefore, he and countless others found a new life. So this is Bill Dodson's story. And the part that I wanted to just sort of quickly go over was on page 186. And this is something that I've used to ask a newcomer. So I have it underlined and it says, ask a newcomer this question. Um, it says here, the next thing they, and that's Bill and Bob who are carrying the message in the Akron hospital. The next thing they wanted to know was if I thought I could quit of my own accord without any help. If I could just walk out of the hospital and never take another drink. If I could, that was wonderful. That was just fine. And they would very much appreciate a person who had that kind of power. But they were looking for a man who knew he had a problem and knew he couldn't handle it himself and needed outside help. The next thing they wanted to know was if I believed in a higher power. And then he goes on to say that he is a man of faith, so he had no problem believing in a higher power. They leave him to think about it. And over on the other page, um, he thinks about the questions that they asked him. I was willing to admit to myself that I had hit bottom, that I had gotten hold of something that I didn't know how to handle by myself. So after reviewing these things and realizing what liquor had cost me, I went to this higher power that to me was God 
without any reservation and admitted that I was completely powerless over alcohol and that I was willing to do anything in the world to get rid of the problem. In fact, I admitted that from then on, I was willing to let God take over instead of me. Each day, I would try to find out what his will was and try to follow that rather than trying to get him to always agree that the things I thought up for myself were the things that were best for me. So, and then there's more great stuff in there. But if you flip over to page 188, Julie, you're going to see where they, they write, uh, at this point, the editors intrude just long enough to mm -hmm. supplement Bill D's account, that of the man on the bed with that of Bill W, the man who sat by the side of the bed. So then they say, this is Bill W saying this uh, about Dr. Bob and himself, about the program beginning 19 years uh, earlier as they started That's awesome. carrying, carrying the message. Yeah. That's awesome. So I thought that was a good little, just sort of to get a little bit more history and uh, know who this um, person was that they're talking about in the forward to the second edition. They're talking about AA number three, Bill D. I love that. And there's some great things in there, right? Like asking the newcomer that question. Basically what you're saying mm -hmm. is, do you think you have a problem? And if the person says no, it's like, okay, then see you later. <laughs> All <Yeah>. right. <laughs> We're not here to sell people something. If you don't yeah. want it, that's fine. You don't have to take it. It's a, it's a solution that is offered freely. If you want it, mm -hmm. it's not for people who need it, right? We always say that it's for people who want it and are willing yeah. to take it, take hold and do the work. Yeah. There's a difference between the prayer of God help me and God help me. I'll do anything to do whatever it is that you're doing. It's very hard to ask specifically in prayer for what you want. I remember trying to get over a relationship and it was really hard for me to ask God to, it was the one right before my husband. I was in deeply grieved because this man just, he wanted to be with me, but you know, didn't want to do any of the work. Like it's easy to want to be someone's boyfriend or husband or girlfriend or wife, but are you going to put in the commitment, the devotion and the work? And so I remember my prayer being, I just couldn't get the words out for a long time to just say, okay, please remove him from my life. I, I couldn't get it out, but it was very easy for me to be like, please help me. God, I need you. I need some comfort or please make this work. But I remember the night I was like, okay, I'm just going to do it. And it was like freeing and awful at the same time. I was like, okay, please remove him from my life. This is not good anymore. So, so that is a great example of being willing to go to any length to pray mm -hmm. for something that you don't want, but you're getting the feeling and the message from a power greater that it's not the, it's not what's good for you. Yeah. So you need to be willing to pray to have it taken away. Yep. Just because you want something, it doesn't mean you should have it. And just because you love something, it doesn't mean you, it should be in your life. Like, I remember so many sponsees crushing on someone or being with someone that wasn't good for them. And I'm like, just because you want them, it doesn't mean you're supposed to have a relationship with them. Mm -hmm. Period. End of sentence. Like you and I have talked about ad nauseum. Feelings are not good barometers as to where you should go and what you should do. Mm -hmm. They have to be measured against wisdom and right thinking. Just like our book says. Like, I, I don't feel like I want to go to the gym. I don't feel like I want to be nice to my husband. I don't feel like I want to go to work. I don't, but like, if we lead with our, that's why depression and anxiety is so high right now, 
people are led by their feelings and feelings as a past, my pastor once said, feelings are uh, horrible drivers. They're uh, horrible backseat drivers, actually. Yeah. <laughs> do, you know, you can't let your feelings drive the bus. You can't. I remember when my sponsor just said, what's the source of that information? And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. He's like, where did that thought come from? That feeling? Where did it come from? I'm like, uh, my head, my brain. He's like, right. Feelings aren't facts. What you think <laughs> other people might be thinking is not the truth. It's just what you think doesn't make it factual. Uh, so that was uh, something that was really helpful to me too. differentiating yeah. between a fact and a feeling. And thoughts and feelings are not commands either. You got to work on like resisting them. Yeah. I, you know? I, it's like with affairs. I had a couple of affairs on my last marriage. Um, I felt like I wanted to have love and attraction and all of those other things. And so I did them. I followed my feelings. Not a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> when you were married to someone else. <laughs> right. Yeah. And they were married to other people. We just followed our feelings. Yeah. So, and I've learned a lot too about how my thoughts actually can create deeper feelings. So if I yes. focus more uh -huh. on that thought, like let's say we take that case of adultery and lust. If I mm -hmm. focus more on those lustful thoughts, they're just going to get bigger. <laughs> and well, that's deeper. why we can have relationships in our head with people and they don't even know. And then they you know, they could be a friend or someone, you know, and they move on and you're reacting as if it's been the worst breakup of your life. And they have not participated in this relationship at all, but in your head, it's a fantasy. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. All right. Thoughts. Okay. And Dangerous. Dangerous. <laughs> Don't let them drive you on the next edition of Julie and Lisa. Oh. All right. <laughs> the second paragraph on page XBII. If you want to continue a second. I just had this image in my head of like what it would look like to have a feeling drive the bus. And it looks like, you know, that above the head of pig pen, mm -hmm. sort of the like swirling hurricane yes. of dirt. That's what my feelings would look like driving the bus mm -hmm. if I could see them. Okay. My a bus second. would be on fire and have no wheels. <laughs> oh my God. That's amazing. Mayhem. <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. Just driving along on whatever is in the middle of a wheel. That's hilarious. Good Lord. All right. A second small group promptly took shape at New York to be followed in 1937 with the start of a third at Cleveland. Besides these, there were scattered alcoholics who had picked up the basic ideas in Akron or New York, who were trying to form groups in other cities. By late 1937, the number of members having substantial sobriety time behind them was sufficient to convince the membership that a new light had entered the dark world of the alcoholic. Da, da, da. Hey, I got an interesting little side note. Speaking of New York and Cleveland, so mm -hmm. we learned about Akron, number one, New York, mm -hmm. number two, Cleveland, number three, uh, one of the great AA people uh, to come out of our program was uh, Clarence. Do you remember Clarence S? Clarence, nope. Clarence Snyder? No. I listened to a lot of speaker tapes. So, you know, old timey speaker tapes from people back in the day. 
Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So he's one of these uh, longtime members. He's now deceased, but his name was Clarence Snyder. And Clarence Snyder talked a lot about the difference between Cleveland, where he was from. So, of course, he thinks that's the best versus New York. And he said New York was doing uh, go to meetings, don't drink. Don't drink, go to meetings. That was their whole philosophy. And Clarence, oh. yeah, Clarence always would like to tell people uh, the difference between that and what was going on in Cleveland was Cleveland was the program of action. So don't drink, go to meetings is fellowship. You mm -hmm. need both. You need fellowship. There are two mm -hmm. parts of this program. There's fellowship as we carry the message to each other, but there has to be the message that's being carried. Mm -hmm. uh, and the message is this message, the 12 steps. And so Clarence would often remind people uh, like, it's okay to go to meetings and don't drink, but that's willpower. That's self-will. Mm -hmm. If you like, if I could do that, <laughs> I wouldn't need AA. Yeah. So I need 12 steps. I need a program of action. And for me, I needed a guide to sort of break it down and, and lead me through it. A sponsor, uh, whatever you want to call them, somebody to take you through the steps. So that's, yeah, that's why we have a triangle. It's three sided. It's not two sided. Mm -hmm. We need our legacies. Which are unity, service and recovery. Yeah. All right. It was now time, the struggling <laughs> groups thought, to place their message and unique experience before the world. This determination bore fruit in the spring of 1939 by the publication of this volume, the one you're holding in your hands. The membership had then reached about 100 men and women, 100 men and women. The fledgling society, which had been nameless, now began to be called Alcoholics Anonymous from the title of its own book. The flying blind period ended and AA entered a new phase of its pioneering time. So we go from that new light entering the dark world of the alcoholic where there was nothing and now we're in the pioneering time where we've gone through the steps. We've adopted some of these tenants from like the Oxford group and the Washingtonian group. Oh, sorry about that. One moment, please. All right. So I'm going to continue reading while she's on her phone call. With the appearance of the new book, a great deal began to happen. Dr. Harry Emerson Fosdick, the noted clergyman, reviewed it with approval. In the fall of 1939, Fulton Ursler, then editor of Liberty, printed a piece in his magazine called Alcoholics and God. This brought a rush of 800 frantic inquiries. Can you believe that? Into the little New York office, while meanwhile, which meanwhile had been established, each inquiry was painstakingly answered. Pamphlets and books were sent out. Businessmen traveling out of existing groups were referred to these prospective newcomers. New groups started up, and it was found to the astonishment of everyone that AA's message could be transmitted in the mail as well as by word of mouth. By the end of 1939, it was estimated that 800 alcoholics were on their way to recovery. Oh, this is so cool, this next part. Next part. In the spring of 1940, John D. Rockefeller Jr. gave a dinner for many of his friends to which he invited AA members to tell their stories. News of this got on the world wires. Inquiries poured in again, and many people went to the bookstores to get the book Alcoholics Anonymous. By March 1941, the membership had shot up to 2,000. 
Then Jack Alexander wrote a feature article in the Saturday Evening Post and placed such a compelling picture of AA before the general public that alcoholics in need of help really deluged us. You can Google that, by the way. We've talked about it in previous podcasts. Um, Googling the Jack Alexander article is really neat. It's a really neat slice of history, but it's also kind of shocking that someone like John D. Rockefeller, prominent um, U.S. family name, family in the U.S., um, many political connections, socialites of the time, that they would have this dinner and moreover publish it in print form for people to know. So it was really a phenomenon of its time. And it's a really neat thing to read if you want to take a peek at it. Uh, By the close of 1941, AA members numbered 8,000. The mushrooming process was in full swing. AA had become a national institution. Our society then entered a fearsome and exciting adolescent period. The test that it faced was this. Could these large numbers of erstwhile erratic alcoholics successfully meet and work together? If you've ever attended a business meeting, you can answer that question for yourself. Part yes, part no. Would there be quarrels over membership, leadership, and money? Would there be strivings for power and prestige? Would there be schisms which would split AA apart? Soon AA was beset by these very problems on every side and in every group. But out of this frightening and at first disrupting experience, the conviction grew that AAs had to hang together or die separately. We had to unify our fellowship or pass off the scene. Ah, wasn't that a great, great time? Like there was so much learning and and where did the learning come from? It came from our difficulty. I love that word schisms, right? Mm -hmm. It, It came because we all have egos. Our egos got in the way. And Mm -hmm. like I heard you say, uh, I had to step away there for a second and I heard you say, well, you've never been to a business meeting. (laughs) And isn't that where all these schisms come out? Yeah, we have to hang together. Like when you're getting really frustrated with people in the program and the goings on in business meetings and the politics of big groups, you have to realize like, and it's mentioned in our big book that it were like fellows together on a sinking ship. Like we need each other. It's not the time to throw each other over the board overboard or go on our own. Like we'll never get out of this if we do that on our own. And I have um, a lot of these are numbered for me on this paragraph, Um, like tradition one. um, So we had to evolve principles by which the AA groups and AA as a whole could survive and function effectively. Uh, Sorry, not principle one, tradition one, tradition two, that our leaders might serve, but never govern. Um, No alcoholic man or woman could be excluded from our society. Tradition three, each group was autonomous. That's number four. And they go on to say, except for when we might affect other groups or AA as a whole. So in other words, if you're a group and you think suddenly, I'm gonna gonna start a disco and I'm gonna serve light non-alcoholic beverages. Well, they've got a little bit, just 1%. And I'm gonna run an AA club out of that. That might be something that might affect AA as a whole. So, you know, (laughs) you might Mm -hmm. not wanna do that. But it's why in Toronto we had, I still don't think it's over. 
the um, AA agnostic and whether that should be on our homepage of AA intergroup. Um, Cause that will, it is alleged that that will affect AA as a whole. So it went back and forth for so long. I think it is now, I could be mistaken, but mm-hmm. these are the kind of things that go up the chain to the, to the intergroup and decisions are made, but every group in intergroup makes a vote. Yes. Like every time there's a change, it is brought to one of our business meetings and it is taken seriously. Yep. And that's why it takes time. Things don't happen uh, instantaneously yeah. overnight. I was at a, uh, I belong to a couple of online groups and there was one where this woman was very upset. She never really agreed with how the group was being run and she kept asking questions and she'd go to one person and when she didn't get the answer she wanted, she'd go to another one. And eventually she came to me and she was like, I want to know who's the head of this organization. I said, you are. But I'm like, and, and I am, and uh, she is, and uh, Jake is, and what I said, we are all equals. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, you're, you're treating this like it's a corporation. It's not, you know, and that's why there yeah. is no perfection. We are trying to progress together and you're missing the point. We're trying to stay sober, not run perfectly. No AA group is ever going to run perfectly. We're always going to have schisms because we're not always going to agree with each other. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it is, it's like the most democratic society I've ever seen. Except when someone goes rogue, like remember in our old home group, someone wanted to bring their dog and it was not approved by anybody in the group. So she actually went to the church herself as if she was the leader of the group to get their permission. And it was like a big deal because like, what are you doing well, and that's that's the interesting thing, right? So in that moment, even then, even though I'm angered by that behavior, um, I can learn from it. And it catch it helps me catch my own character defects because right now I'm judging her. And I was. That was somebody who I definitely judged. Oh, I'm still judging based that because to <laughs> me, that is a crime of the ego. It's Absolutely. like, I'm not in this with you guys. I'm in this for myself and I want to get this done. So I'm going to go outside of you guys. I'm going to go straight to the head of the, the, the issue here. Yeah. And that was disrespect and disunity. And what do you call it? Dissension. Yeah. So, the, and that's what I was just going to point out. So what did that situation teach me as an individual watching that behavior? It's like, wow. Even someone with, I don't know, she had over 20 years, I think, of sobriety. And pretty happy, joyous, and free to yeah. boot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yet there she is being completely selfish, self-centered, and self-seeking, mm-hmm. and not thinking about the group, only thinking about herself. Mm-hmm. And as a former dog trainer, I'm sitting there going, you want to bring your dog to the group because it doesn't have any fucking training and it has separation anxiety, and you can't leave it at home alone. So that's mm-hmm. the, bottom, the root of the problem. Um, but yeah, there's always going to be things like that. Oh, just recently, um, you'll love this story. Um, one of the big buffoons at our former home group uh, was asked to speak. Why anyone would ask? This I, you know, I already know. I, you don't even have to give me. And this, this, our old home group is a big effing group. Huge. It's over 200 people. And I don't even need any more description. I know exactly who you're talking about. <laughs> Well, and this will seal the deal for you because as part of his talk, which is supposed to be about his recovery, he mentions how AA is full of uh, hypocrites, how we're all a bunch of assholes at this group, 
And AA is full of hot women. None of them attend <gasps> group. Oh, no, he didn't. So why the room didn't get up and do a mass exodus and just leave? <laughs> I have no idea. And yeah. why anyone would ask this guy to speak is absolutely beyond me. I and guess just is... to show people that we're a group of sick people and everyone is welcome. <laughs> I would have yelled out, keep coming back. Yeah. <laughs> or don't. That's what I would have yelled. Yeah. Right after that. Stay don't let the hit you way <laughs> out. Which and it's interesting because this individual um has a beautiful, wonderful wife and gorgeous little girls. And he speaks like this in front of them. And we've seen it many times when they've come to meetings. And you're yeah. just like, huh, okay. All right. So that's what sobriety looks like. For that guy. And hand me another bottle. Yeah. That's uh it's a great reminder about live and let live, right? Because that guy has um, you know, bothered me for years, but I can't let him stand in the way of my sobriety. I can't let his bad behavior drive me from a group, which yeah. is why I'm so glad we have uh, the safety cards. Because maybe one day he might hear it and go, oh, <laughs> mm -hmm. maybe I should behave differently. But that's the thing. That's what the traditions are telling us. We don't get to govern other people. Mm -hmm. We're going we're gonna to see people like this. Um, my first sponsor used to say, um, some people are sicker than others. And just mm -hmm. because someone comes to AA doesn't mean that they're going to get better. Mm -hmm. Some that people is true. Just get dry. Case in point. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Run. Well, so this paragraph that we're about to read, then what we're talking about is it is the outline of the 12 traditions. Mm -hmm. And it begins, as we discovered, the principles, meaning which is what this is all built upon, by which the individual alcoholic could live. So we had to evolve principles by which AA groups and AA as a whole could survive and function effectively. It was thought that no alcoholic man or woman could be excluded from our society. I love the, the capital S on society. That our leaders might serve but never govern, that each group was to be autonomous and there was to be no professional class of therapy. There were to be no fees or dues. Our expenses were to be met by our own voluntary contributions. There was to be the least possible organization, even in our service centers. Our public relations were to be based upon attraction rather than promotion. It was decided that all members ought to be anonymous at the level of press, radio, TV, and films. And in no circumstances should we give endorsements, make alliances, or enter into public and I like the way your wife says it, controversies. This was the substance of AA's 12 traditions, which are stated in full on page 561 of this book. Though none of these principles had the force of rules or laws, they had become so widely accepted by 1950 that they were confirmed by our first international conference held at Cleveland. Today, the remarkable unity of AA is one of the greatest assets that our society has. And if you're reading a book and it said a different page number, it just means you have a different printed edition. That's all. Because I had a, um, a sponsee say, well, so-and-so always quotes the book and they get the pages wrong. I said, they probably just have a different printing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, the internal difficulties of our adolescent period were being ironed out. Public acceptance of AA grew by leaps and bounds. For this, there were two principal reasons. And I'm sorry, we're on page XX in the forward to the second edition at the top of the page. 
the large numbers of recoveries were one, and the reunited homes were the second reason. These made their impressions everywhere. So in other words, a great example of attraction, not promotion. People were seeing evidence of lives being restored right in front of them. So people were recovering from the disease of alcoholism and their families and homes were being reunited. Mm -hmm. I like those, uh, that explanation of the two principal reasons. Of alcoholics who came to AA and really tried, 50% got sober at once and remained that way. 25% sobered up after some relapses. And among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. And I've always said, when someone asked me how successful is the program, what's the uh, percentage of people who recover? It's 100% for those <laughs> that are willing and honest and do the work. Yeah, it's and it's really hard to get hard and fast data because it's an anonymous society. Yeah. So you don't really know. And for the people that are naysayers or these statistics where it's like 95% of people that go to AA flunk out. Well, it's probably because those people are the vociferous ones instead of the people inside the group that wish to remain anonymous. Because you and I have seen the thousands and thousands and thousands of people get it, get restored, get their families back. And you just have to keep going to meetings, go to a world conference, go to a roundup. And you're like, this thing is freaking miraculous. These, these people in this program. Yeah. What was that? Um, uh, Addiction Canada, Rehab Canada. There's some organization. I think it's in Ontario, actually. There's a local guy um, anyway. And I was thinking about him uh, and he was helping all these people get sober, but he can't stay sober himself. Mm. And it, it's really important that people understand that you have to get step one. Um, and if you refuse to admit that you're an alcoholic and you're just going to, you know, try to be one of all the time and, and be different, be the exception to the rule, then yeah, I think you are going to have difficulty with this program. Um, and yeah, as Julie said, um, it's very hard to get statistical data from an organization that is anonymous. Um, not everybody, uh, not everybody goes to a business meeting. So you can imagine at a meeting where there's 200 people, but only 30 go to a business meeting. Those are the 30 votes that count when mm -hmm. we take the information back up the chain uh, to the uh, service assemblies. Um, so the numbers are aren't uh, cannot be accurate because mm -hmm. of that. Um, over other thousands came to a few AA meetings and at first decided they didn't want the program, but great number of these, about two out of three, began to return as time passed. Another reason for the wide acceptance of AA was the ministration of friends, friends in medicine, religion, and the press, together with innumerable others who became our able and persistent advocates. Without such support, AA could have made only the slowest progress. Some of the recommendations of AA's early medical and religious friends will be found further on in this book. Alcoholics Anonymous is not a religious organization. Neither does AA take any particular medical point of view, though we cooperate widely with the men of medicine as well as with the men of religion. And, uh, People, some people will scoff at saying it's not a religious organization because God is mentioned, but the two don't, aren't, um, what's the word? Anyways, when one interacts with another, 
uh, mutually dependent. I don't know. Anyways, just because God is mentioned, it doesn't mean it's a religious organization. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about this before where, I mean, they did get um, some of their ideas and tenets from a Christian organization known as the Oxford group. And before mm-hmm. that, the Washington Washingtonians. Um, but now we're seeing online, I'm seeing people say prayers that aren't Christian based um, mm-hmm. or other types of prayers. Uh, it's about believing in a power greater than yourself. And, mm-hmm. uh, and for everyone that can be different. That's why I love AA because it's non-discriminatory. Like you, when I used to take AA into the men's prison, when I was doing my chaplain stuff there, I could go, you know, I could preach a sermon, but it was obviously, um, aimed towards the Christians in the group. Anybody could attend, but you know, you probably wouldn't if you were Muslim or Jewish or Hindu, but I could go in and teach the 12 step program and I could have all religions, including, including agnostic in there. And it just doesn't discriminate. It's going to make sense for everyone because everyone's concept of God is different. Absolutely. And they touch on that next. If you want to read about that, speaking of those different, uh, Alcohol, being no respecter of persons, we are an accurate cross-section of America, and in distant lands, the same democratic evening up process is now going on. By personal religious affiliation, we include Catholics, Protestants, Jews, Hindus, and a sprinkling of Muslims and Buddhists. I like how they spell Muslims. It's like the old way to spell Muslims. It's Muslims, M-O-S-L-E-M-S. More than 15% of us are women. I find it interesting that it's like, where they talk about how diverse the religions are. And then at the end, it's like more than 15% of us are women. <laughs> and they throw women in at the very end. It just strikes me as funny. <laughs> I, I know what they're trying to make a distinction in because being no respecter of persons, because in the beginnings of our groups, it was rare uh, that women were there and the initial women were ladies of the evening. So it yeah. took a little while for women to become a big part of the numbers of AA. Thank God for tradition three, right? Because Mm -hmm. there were some that wanted to keep women out because Mm -hmm. as you said, the early women were mostly prostitutes uh, or people, women who had fallen really far down the scale and probably would have done anything for a drink. Um, So they didn't want us as part of the group. But tradition three, for those who may not be familiar is the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. So you can't keep me out no matter what. So if like a dog walks in and it's like, I'm, I can't stop drinking. You (laughs) have to let the dog in because that's the only requirement for membership. I heard a guy in our meeting this morning talking about how he spot, he was having the age old debate about men with men, women versus women. He gets quite adamant when he hears uh, somebody say women should sponsor women and men should sponsor men. Um, And he was quite adamant about how he sponsors women and it, he doesn't see sex or gender. And I'm thinking, I bet you, so what, you're not, you're not attracted <laughs> to women? Is that what you're saying? I wanted to say that, but I've learned to keep my mouth shut in meetings, Julie. You'd be mm-hmm. proud of me. But mm-hmm. in my head, I was thinking, so what, you're telling us you're not attracted to any sex? And then he said, uh, a dog could be my sponsor. And it, again, I had to bite my oh, tongue. Oh, no, he didn't. I wanted to say, I wanted to say, only if the dog had a drinking problem. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God bless us oh, all, everyone. we here in meetings. I love it. Mm-hmm. All right. Continuing on with the big book. <laughs> we we have one paragraph left in our forward to the second edition. Yeah, we're trying okay. to power through Hang this. Hang in there. 
At present, our membership is pyramiding at the rate of about 20% a year. So far, upon the total problem of several million actual and potential alcoholics in the world, we have made only a scratch. In all probability, we shall never be able to touch more than a fair fraction of the alcohol problem in all its ramifications. Upon, the sorry, upon therapy for the alcoholic himself, we surely have no monopoly. Yet it is our great hope that all these who have as yet found no answer may begin to find one in the pages of this book and will presently join us on the high road to a new freedom. That's a nice I love word. that. That is nice. A nice wish, a nice hope. I, I've, I've recently started to tell people too, you know, in how it works uh, when they get to that line, um, may you find him now? Mm. Uh, I used to think that was a command or a demand and I didn't like it. Who are they to tell me that I need to find God? I better find him now. Like, fuck you. And now I look at it as it's a nice wish. It's what mm -hmm. they wish for me. It's what they hope for me. Yeah. They hope I may find him now mm -hmm. so that I can be relieved of the bondage of self. Mm -hmm. I look at it differently now. But we did it. Let's look forward to the second edition. And the forward to the third and fourth edition is much smaller. Yes. So, so we'll get to that the next time. Yeah. And then we can even probably bang off a little bit of the doctor's opinion next time. Oh, the doctor's opinion. The doctor's opinion is definitely like for me, a vision for you is my favorite chapter in the big book, but the doctor's opinion is maybe equal to it. It's just so damn good. It is. And uh, really, like if we don't understand the doctor's opinion, it'll be very difficult for us to take the action in the steps because we need mm -hmm. to understand the nature of the disease, right? Mm -hmm. Step one, we need to understand the nature of the solution. Step two mm -hmm. and three. Mm -hmm. uh, and we need to come to the uh, turning our will and our life over to a power greater. And then we get onto the action of the steps. So yeah. And we okay. get to know the nature of God through steps two and three, which would be like God's omniscience and omnipotence and sovereignty which means the creator of the universe, however you define that, can and will help you. It's an absolute guarantee. Amazing. Mm -hmm. And we are proof of it because we are recovered. Mm -hmm. From a hopeless state of mind and body, not from cured forever drinking, right. <laughs> from the spiritual malady, which is what this program addresses. Yeah. We do not get to pick up a drink again and drink safely. That's no. the other thing I got from the uh, Bill Bill D story. There's a mm -hmm. part in there where they say to him, oh, we've got some bad news for you. It was bad news <laughs> for us, and it will probably be bad news for you. Whether you quit six days, months, or years, if you go out and take a drink or two, you'll end up in the hospital tied down, just like you have been in these past six months, because you are an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. Yes. You cannot drink again safely, but one day at a time. That's how we live this, this program. Yeah. And next month I'm coming up to nine years of continuous sobriety one day at a time. Amazing. So I didn't look at, you know, I'm going to be sober for the rest of my life. It's one day at a time. And we all have different one days at a time, one day, maybe, uh, or 10 days or 12 days or however many days nine years is. And we have like our little friend group. It's like we, I think for like four months in a row, each person 
has a recovery date all around the same time. Well, not that's not true. Yeah. You've got more than me, right? Are you uh, at no. eight? No, I think you mm-hmm. have a month more than me, don't you? Two months more than me. Oh, really? We're in the same year? Um, I'm in. I'll be, uh, nine. <laughs> I'll be nine years on October yeah. 22nd. Yeah, you're a couple months ahead of me because I'm oh. nine, nine years on January 1st. Oh my God, January 1st. That's a great <laughs> sobriety date. That's the date above all other dates. It puts you in a completely different category. <laughs> I don't know about that, but uh, yeah, that's my date, January 1. Yeah. You know, my bestie just came down a couple of weeks ago, spent a week here in Tennessee with me. Um, and when she went home, she had to go to this like birthday bash and she drank way too much. And, she, you know, we're, of the age in our mid forties where it's not a day hangover anymore. It's like two days. And so like on day two, I'm like, how's it going? And she's like, it's, I can't, it's so bad. Day three, she was so anxious and depressed. She thought she was going to have an anxiety attack. And I'm like, girl, it's just your brain detoxing. Yeah. Like you got to give it a couple of days, especially at our age. It has so fucked with your, uh, neurology that your you know your normal state of depression and anxiety is jacked up by like a thousand percent so just hang in there and I just said to her oh fuck I don't miss those days yeah oh god even hearing how bad the hangover was I was like dropping to my knees so grateful that I have not had to experience that in nine years yeah what a gift she's not one of us right she's just a normal who had a bad night Drinking, yeah, like drink. the whole time she was here, we went out to Broadway, which is like Vegas down there. And I think she had three or four drinks over the period of like four hours and they're bar drinks in plastic cups. So it's not like a shot. It's like watered down with sugar and ice and all of that other stuff. And she ate at one point, like drank like a normal person. Normal person yeah. <laughs> yeah. And when you said she had a hangover, like you do when you're in your forties, you know, that lasted two days. I'm like, damn, I aged fast. I was having those hangovers at 16. <laughs> oh no, you were having like multiple day hangovers? Oh yeah. Oh shit. Yeah. I didn't I, even have a hangover for the first two years of my drinking and I started drinking at 27. No, I started young and hard and my hangovers were hard. And by the time I was 21, I was getting hospitalized with hangovers. Because wow. by day three, I needed to get hospitalized to have a shot so that they would help me stop heaving because I I stopped dry heaving and I'm on day three and my body's trying to get rid of things that aren't even in there anymore and then you did another what 20 years of solid (laughs) dumbassery we're we're so stupid aren't we yeah yeah. like what a bunch of dummies dumb fuckery for another 20 years because I'm smart like that SMR. (laughs) I was looking at, um, in my previous shot glass, I talked about how my parents, you don't know this yet, but they went on one of their benders and the police literally kicked down their door. Mm. Anyways, my mom's been going around telling everyone my dad has dementia, which he doesn't. (laughs) It's like age related memory problems are very different than dementia. I don't know why she's doing this anyways. So I, I looked up brain scans of normal brains and brains of alcoholics, whether they binge or drink consistently. And it's fucking horrifying. It is so horrifying that I think if I had seen these brain scans, 
I would have probably stopped drinking earlier. Yeah. It's like it literally makes you stupid. It looks like you have dementia. It leads you to wet brain. Like seeing the actual physical example is so bad. So if you need some motivation in your life to stop drinking, just Google brain scans of the alcoholic brain. There's this guy I heard in a meeting not too long ago, and he talks about his first sponsor taking him to a hospital and taking him to a place where there were people who were in there with actual wet brain. People who could not function, their brains were damaged and they couldn't eat, couldn't feed themselves. They were drooling. And he said, this is your future. Oh, that's so smart. Yeah. If you don't like, don't stop. This is your future. It's like that show where they take juveniles into jail to try and break them of their stupid, illegal behaviors. Yeah. Scared straight. That is a great way to scare scared straight. That's funny. You can look at that a couple of ways. Um, (laughs) That would be like the version of, or they should put that in the intervention shows. Just take the person into a ward where everybody's got wet brain. I have a separate uh, TV show, reality TV show that I could star in called (laughs) scared, (laughs) scared gay. (laughs) Show me a picture of a penis. (laughs) Oh, so funny. All right. On that note, (laughs) (laughs) thanks so much for joining us on another episode of our big book study as we sort of digress into a whole bunch of other things, but we're slowly (laughs) getting through the big book as we go. Thanks for putting up with us, joining us. And uh, if nothing else, we hope we helped you stay sober for another hour. I'm Lisa. I'm Julie. And this has been Two Sober Chicks.